Bonjour, you are listening to Hashtag Feminist Fridays, your weekly dose of empowerment. I am your co-host, Sarah Liberty, recording live from Paris, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brad Dunt, in our Sydney Energy Guru studio. And our amazing special guest for this week is Rachel Natoli, who is the CEO and founder of Lokahi Foundation, an incredible organisation helping women who have survived domestic violence to rebuild their lives. And we will be hearing more about how she's doing that shortly. But to kick off today's segment, I'd like to introduce our first song, which is called Power is Taken. And it is the latest from Moby and D.H. Pelligrew. So it's a 2020 song. You might recall Moby as an early noughties producer. So it's been a while back since we've heard from him. But this song is all about fighting oppression and taking power back. Now, be warned, it is a little intense. So if you are feeling a little fragile or battling a hangover, maybe turn the hang maybe turn the volume down slightly. But um I think this is a pretty powerful song. So let's kick it off. Yeah. 
must fight against the oppressors. Power is not shared. Power is taken. We who hate oppression must fight against the oppressors. Power is not shared. Power is taken. Welcome, Rachel, to Feminist Fridays. Rachel, you are the CEO and founder of Lokahi Foundation. So your organization is really special because you help women to rebuild their lives after surviving domestic violence, particularly through providing casework that isn't limited, is is ongoing. And you also have um, some empowerment programs that bring women together to help them to realise that they're not alone in their situation and to uh, show solidarity. So once again, welcome to our segment. It's really great to have you. Thanks, Sarah. It's really uh, great to be part of this. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Been wanting to do so for some time, so I'm so glad that we could get you on. Yeah, we could finally find a date. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. It's no problem. <laughs> so let's uh, let's kick things off. Just to briefly introduce yourself, perhaps could you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, and your former career path and your role now at Lokahi Foundation and how you got there. And we'll go into a bit more detail about that later. But, yeah, let's let's just start by hearing a little bit about you. Yeah, so um, I'm sure that some people can tell from my accent that I'm originally from the UK. Um, I've been um, here for 13 years now. So basically I... Grew up in England, mostly in Manchester, a little bit down south, um, wow. and I'm an only child. I was raised by a very stable family. Um, my parents were together until I was 22 years old, so I had a great upbringing. Um, I thought the sun shone out of my dad, so I had a very positive yeah. male role model in my life. Um, mm. I went to straight from school to uni to become a primary school teacher and then straight mm-hmm. from finishing uni into teaching. And I taught in England for about three and a half years. And then I came over here on holiday to visit a friend of mine that had been a teacher in the UK, had moved here with her partner. And when I got to Sydney um, as part of the trip, so she was based in Melbourne, I came to Sydney because I thought Australia was so far, I was never going to come back to Oz again. Um, I just thought that my, felt like my heart belonged here and that I needed to move here. And then I met this concierge at the hotel that I was staying in and we dated, we fell in love and I decided to move over here and start a life with him three months later. So I basically went back to England, handed in my notice, rented out my apartment, sold my car, shipped my stuff over and moved myself back here. Wow. Well, I certainly can identify with moving long, long ways across the world. So <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, that's amazing that you've started to rebuild your life in Sydney. 
Yeah, so um, basically when I came here, I moved straight in with um, the guy that I met and um, we were together for seven and, a half year, seven and a half years, during which time we got married and had twin boys. Um, and unfortunately, that was an extremely abusive relationship. So I was in a physically, sexually, financially and emotionally abusive relationship for that period of time. Um, I did leave him once during that time before we were married and before we had children. Um, but as is the case with many women, I ended up going back quite quickly Um I think on average they say that we leave seven times before we leave for good. Um, I guess wow. I only left once before I left for good the second time. But, you know, it took a long time for me to get to the stage where I could actually leave. Um, and when I left, I left with two-and-a-half-year-old twins, um, no car, no money, very little to mm. my name. And we were in five different homes in seven weeks um, we lived in crisis accommodation for a period of time and it was tough, but the reality was that I felt empowered that I was free from him and I decided mm. that um, what I wanted to do was provide caseworkers to women like this amazing caseworker that I had that had supported me through the hardest time of my life. And I felt like mm. if everyone had a caseworker like her, not only may we reduce that stat that says that we leave seven times before we leave for good, because if people had somebody supportive to hold their hand through it, they might not go back. But that if they recognise that they were in an abusive relationship and they knew there was that support out there, they might actually leave that relationship much sooner. And so mm -hmm. I decided to set up my own foundation that would provide caseworkers for as long as women needed because when I started to look into it, a lot of the organisations that do provide caseworkers and do do an amazing job were only able to provide those caseworkers for six months, maybe 12. And it's a funding issue. It's not that they don't want to help these women long term. It's literally that most of them rely on government funding and the funding doesn't enable them to provide the support for long term. So at Lakai, we provide support for a minimum of two to three years because we recognise it's not just about getting women through the crisis period. That's the start of it. They need to be able to resettle, get them into either a new home or settled into a new life in their existing home and then looking at rebuilding their life and how we empower them to become the person that they once were and heal from all the abuse that they've been through. That's incredible. And I know that it is very difficult for women in domestically violent or abusive relationships to leave. Um, exactly for those reasons that you've stated, you know, financially, emotionally, it's really, really tough. It is. It's very but, tough. Yeah. Before we talk a little bit more about Vokahi, how would you, for, for those listeners out there who might not be um, aware of domestic abuse or domestic violence, how would you define it? Well, I guess, you know, if you want to give an official definition of being in an abusive mm -hmm. relationship, you're talking about any incident of controlling, coercive, threatening behaviour, violence or yes. abuse between those who are or have been intimate partners or family members. 
But you know what we've got to remember, and I think the point that we need to make clear to people is domestic abuse is so much more than physical violence. It's yeah. one of the reasons that Lakai chose to call it domestic abuse rather than domestic violence, because okay. no matter how hard we try and how much education we do, people still think about the physical violence. And I don't ever want to hear any woman justify being in an abusive relationship and saying, oh, but he never hit me. Because if you're in an emotionally or financially abusive relationship, that can be just as, if not more damaging, especially in the long term. Domestic abuse can encompass, but isn't limited to psychological, to emotional, sexual, financial. And the thing we have to remember is it can affect anyone in our community. It doesn't discriminate regardless of your gender, your sexuality, your religion or your socioeconomic background. It's happening in every part of this country, in every part of every other country. Mm. Sorry to interject, but I guess um, Rachel... If you wouldn't mind just, uh, I guess, maybe expanding on your experience a little bit, um, at what point did you realise, did you come to that realisation that you were in a an abusive relationship? Um, because I suppose for a lot of people who might be in that situation, on the outset, they may not necessarily recognise it themselves yeah. or want to acknowledge that they are in one. And I think that's one of the toughest parts is... You know, we talk about red flags and recognising those red flags, but at what point do you recognise those red flags and be honest with yourself and acknowledge that you are now in an abusive relationship? And I think that's really tough. I think the control almost seeps in. It's um, generally done very gradually. Um, And before you know it, you are almost completely being controlled by the perpetrator And for me, I was very isolated. I had just moved here from the other side of the world. I knew one other person in the whole country and she was based in Melbourne. I had no Mm. job. I'd moved straight in with him so I had nowhere else to go. I felt like I had very limited options. So I probably knew within a few months that there were some red flags, but not in the way that I would see them now. I just thought they were strange behaviours. I didn't like them. I don't think I realised I was in an abusive relationship. To call it out as an abusive relationship for probably about 18 months. Um, And we got engaged about two years after I moved here. We were supposed Mm -hmm. to get married in 2010 Um, So we got engaged at the end of 2009 and I ended up leaving in the January of 2010. So I guess by that stage you could say I was very clear on the fact that I was in an abusive relationship and I didn't want to be part of that. I think when I was going to work and my arms were covered in bruises and knowing that I couldn't tell people what those bruises were from, you have to start being a little bit more honest with yourself about the fact that you're covering up for somebody else. But I think it's also at that point where you are having to be honest with yourself. That's where the difficulty comes in to say, this isn't right. And where there isn't the physical violence, how do you say with emotional abuse that it's not just an argument? How do you recognize it as those red flags of emotional abuse? Anybody that's making you feel worthless day after day is being emotionally abusive. And I mean, it's so much more than that. But, you know, if somebody is making you feel like that, I think you have to acknowledge this is a toxic relationship. This is an abusive person that you're in a relationship with. Yeah, and I completely identify with that. 
I I personally did also endure and emotionally and psychologically and eventually violent abusive relationship. Um, and there were red flags for me. But I was, you know, very, very confused about what was going on and whether or not it was just all in my head. So it, in my circumstances, it, it took me several months to actually go, wait on a minute, I don't think something's right. Someone's acting in a way that is controlling, started to do things like monitor me via social media, hacking into my accounts, um, eventually starting to become physically violent, things like pulling my hair and stopping me from leaving the apartment that we were sharing. And it was at that point that I was like, okay, I need to leave. But, you know, it's really, really true that women often just uh, are confused and are not sure about what's going on. So I think what you've just said about if you feel something's not right, if you feel controlled or that something's toxic in any way, then trust your gut and, uh, and you know, start to seek help to leave that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think, you know, we, we are so keen often to try and make that relationship work um, that, you know, we're not being open about what it actually looks like. And I think one of the best bits of advice I could give to somebody, one of the best piece of a, pieces of advice would be that take yourself out of that situation in terms of look at it as if it was a friend telling you those things about their partner. And what would you say to them? Um, would you say uh-huh. that that would be okay? Because if you wouldn't, then it's not okay for you. And I think one of the things that we have to remember is you know, this happens over a period of time. It's not an overnight thing that's going on. And that many domestic abuse victims are not weak women. And that that can be no. how they're perceived. But they are actually very strong and independent women. And that's why they were targeted by their perpetrators. They're much more of a challenge to try and control and destroy. The way they leave the relationship is not the way they started. And that's not who mm. they are. They were who they are. And that's why we wanted to provide caseworkers that could help empower them back to the people that they once were. Thank you for saying that. So as you said, you, you, you did endure a long-term relationship that was physically, emotionally, financially and sexually abusive and that must have been, you know, I can't imagine how hard it was one of the most common and frustrating things that I hear when it comes to this issue is people saying, well, if you're in an abusive relationship, why don't you just leave? 
And <laughs> that's one of my yeah. favorite questions, Sarah. I love yeah. when people ask me that. <laughs> yeah. So what are your reflections on that? <laughs> well, I'm always so positive when people ask me that question. Why didn't I just leave? Um, no, I think it's really important to be able to um, explain it to people so that the women that are in those relationships, because I think the people who are asking those questions who aren't in an abusive relationship rarely need to go and do some more homework. And I really have very little interest in having to justify that to anybody. I'm more mm. thinking when I want to answer that question about how I can address it to the women that may be in those relationships and feeling um, totally disillusioned with where they're at and they're feeling very weakened by the situation that they're in um, and giving them the strength to actually get to the stage where they can leave. Why aren't they leaving? Well, there's so many reasons why we don't leave. The control, the financial aspect for many, for many the children, protecting the children. Lots of women don't want to leave because it's actually, they feel that they're protecting their children by staying because the family courts may decide that that perpetrator gets time with the children without the mother there and then who's going to protect the children. There are just so many reasons why they can't just leave. If it was that easy, we would get up and walk away, straight away. Mm -hmm. And there are women who are physically assaulted and they walk out of that relationship and they never go back and that's fantastic for them. But for those that have endured abuse over a period of time or for those that go back time and time again, I think we have to help empower them to say you will get there one day you just have to keep being as strong as you are um you know keep resisting as much as you can every time you answer back you are showing resistance every time you get through another day you are showing resistance um and let's focus on instead of why didn't they leave why are we allowing mostly men to continue perpetrating abuse against women why are there not more severe consequences instead of asking why didn't they just leave? Well, that's a fantastic point. And I think, you know, some of those, one of the most significant hurdles that I faced was the financial and logistical challenges of leaving. When I eventually left my abusive relationship, I was forced to become homeless. I ended up staying in the women's refuge um, because at that point in time, none of my friends or family were, were in a, a place to offer me somewhere to actually stay. So it is, it, it's, it's just, it's so hard to leave and, finding somewhere safe to stay. And I can't imagine how much harder it must be for women with children as well. So, Yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah. And I think one of the hardest things, I, I don't know about your situation in particular, Sarah, but we were supporting a lady um, at the end of last year and she was, her children were grown up. So she was looking for some kind of, crisis accommodation or women's refuge and the only thing that was available to her in her area refuge wise was a shared room 
Now, Mm. I'm sure you know as well as I do, when you're leaving an abusive relationship, the last thing you want is to be sharing a room with a stranger. You need to have Mm -hmm. your own space, but unfortunately the the funding isn't provided for shelters to be able to do that, whereas somebody with children is at least being able to be given their own room. So I think in that way we're failing to support those women. We're failing to give them the options and the support to help them to get out and to stay out. Mm, I couldn't agree with you more. So at a forum I attended with you last year, I think it was the first time I met you, one of the things that really struck struck me was your declaration that you refuse to remain silent on this issue, that you uh, you feel compelled to speak up. Um, why do you think it's so important for poor survivors to share, share their story? Look, I, I felt like it was really important because I wanted my ex-husband to be held accountable for his behaviour. Mm. Um, he had perpetrated abuse against several of his ex-partners. I don't know how many, but I know that when we went to um, the family court um, and we subpoenaed records, there were at least three other AVOs that had taken out been taken out against him by three separate women and none of those had ever been made final. Now, I don't know what the reasons for that were. I would suggest that they either went back into the relationship with him or they didn't want to see it through, which is why if you if I had searched for him on that AVO register, I wouldn't have been able to find it anyway. That didn't exist when I met him. But, you know, I think what we have to realise is while that that's a great way to look at people's past, it doesn't always cover off. So mm. I felt like, one, I wanted to hold him accountable and I really wanted to help women. And I think if you really want to make a difference, you have to stand up and say, this happened to me and I'm going to tell you about my story and I'm going to tell you about what he did so that you know I've been through it all. I've lived in a shelter. We had five different different homes in seven weeks. I've used all the services. I've been through legal aid. I've used victim services. So I can tell you how they really work. Um, Not all women are in that situation. Not all women are allowed to talk about it because they're currently Mm. going through the family courts. So they're silenced by the courts. That's something I don't agree with. As long as you're not talking about the specifics of the family court and the children, I don't understand why you're not able to come out and say you've been in an abusive relationship and I certainly don't agree with it. It's silencing the victim and it's one thing I won't tolerate. But in other ways, you know, some women just don't feel safe or strong enough to share their story and that's okay. We don't all have to be sharing our stories. But if you're in a position where you feel strong enough, where you're healed enough, and that's one of the other things is I see women survivors all the time talking about their stories, but they're still very damaged. They're not healed enough to be telling their stories. They shouldn't be at a stage where they're telling them yet. You've got to be able to tell it without it impacting you for weeks afterwards. And that's the reality of having been through 
any kind of abusive relationship, um, you have to have done the healing yourself. But if you are in that mm. position, speak out. Let people know that you, if you are wanting to make a difference, you know, let people know that you want to help others so that we have a voice, a strong voice together to make change. Yeah, and I, I certainly know about those legal and those court obstacles that are in place. I wasn't able to speak out about my situation until an AVO had had been put in place. But when that had was ready and was finalised, I was just like, you know what, I am not going to shut up. I'm going to tell other people about what happened. And it was amazing the amount of support I received. So, you know, I completely agree with you. I think it's really important to speak up. It's very if, empowering. If are, and I, sorry to interrupt. It's very empowering. But, and I also think from my point of view, if by speaking out, I help one woman to leave an abusive relationship, then yeah. I'll have achieved everything I could have hoped for. Anything above mm. that is amazing. But I just yeah. want to know, you know, I want women to know if you're in, if they're still in those relationships, you can leave, you can get out. And not only that, but you can rebuild your life. You don't have to go and start a foundation. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be a stay at home mom. There is no shame in doing that either. I was a stay at home mom for the first five years of my boys' lives. But the reality is you can leave and you can rebuild your life. And here's living proof that you can do that. So look, gender-based violence is a crisis in Australia, what do you think needs to happen in Australia to turn this crisis around? And whose responsibility is it? It's it's everybody's responsibility. I don't Mm. think, you know, we can't just put it down to political responsibility. It is everybody's responsibility. We have to call out abuse where and when we see it. I don't think uh, it's acceptable to let things go. Um, I don't think it's acceptable to observe abuse and stay silent because staying silent is as bad as condoning it. Um, And in terms of what we can do to change it, I think we have to go right back to basics and we have to start educating our children on respectful relationships and abusive relationships. And we have to do that at an age appropriate level. But starting from high school is too late. We have to start at childcare and we have to talk about um, consent and that no means no. And we have to be teaching that from when they start daycare. And we have to teach them about how men need to respect women and women need to respect men. This is a gender equality issue This is not about men bashing and saying, you know, men hurt women or men are abusive to women. Yes, the statistics show that is mainly, um, you know, female victims of um, domestic abuse and male perpetrators. There's no denying that. But the reality is we have to have more respect for each other. And I believe if that's taught um, in, you know, 
a more structured way right from those early ages, we may start to see those changes come through. I also think we need to have harsher penalties for those that are abusive. Mm. Um, You know, good behaviour bonds don't cut it. We are too lenient with perpetrators of domestic abuse, especially when there's a history of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I wanted to actually ask you more about some of the empowering activities that you're doing through your foundation, such as the events that you're holding and your SHINE program. Can we hear a little bit about these? and how they're helping survivors to rebuild their lives. Yeah, absolutely. We're about to um, start a new um, SHINE empowerment program this year and we're hoping to do it around International Women's Day. So SHINE is a um, seven-week program for us. So we do six weeks taught sessions um, and the seventh week we work um, with Dress for Success, which is an organisation that lots of people will have heard of. So we go and have a celebratory work at Dress for, uh, week at Dress for Success where the women that have taken part in Shine get to um, have some new clothing and some makeup and a confidence session. But basically Shine focuses on three areas, worth, strength and purpose. Um, mm-hmm. It is... Um, basically a program designed to develop greater self-awareness and personal growth and to equip participants with the knowledge and skills to to develop those areas. Um, We are running it this year um, with Willara Council, so it will probably take place at Double Bay Library. We just need to confirm the dates with them. Um, Ooh, I love that library. (laughs) It's a beautiful library. Um, We ran it there last time. Yeah, and we don't don't, um, advertise it for women that have been through domestic abuse. This is an empowerment program. It's for women. Um, we don't, we don't care if you haven't been through an abusive relationship. This is about you taking some time to focus on you. What we found last time, we ran two groups, one for mums and one for women over 45. And again, if you were a mum over 45, um, or a woman over 45, that was a mum, you could come to whichever group you wanted to come to. But what we found was that um, a very high percentage of our participants had either been in a domestic abuse relationship or were being abused by their children because there's so much elder abuse going on. So that was quite scary for us that that that's, they were the kind of women that were coming. But we had some mm. amazing results, some very empowered women by the end of it. Um, we had women that went away after the first week who went and did something as simple as painting their nails that they hadn't done for two years. So just focusing on their self-worth and, you know, remembering what it's like to be able to take care of and focus on you. Um, And I think if we can go back down to those basics with things like shine, we can really empower women to reset and, and start to move forward. As Brad knows, I am a bit of a, Fashion addict. <laughs> I was going to say, Sarah, that um, doesn't sound like you. <laughs> painting my nails is something that I do religiously. I get getting myself a manicure. Always got time it for is. that. It, it is. It's like it's it's about giving yourself some love. Absolutely, so but that's not, because you're a strong, empowered woman, Sarah. Yeah. This is where we want everyone to be. So I just wanted to put a quote here, which um, is is something that I've reflected on a little bit. Um, Beyonce has said that power is not 
given to you. You have to take it. Um, do you agree with this and why or why not? Well, I don't know that you have to take it as such. I think you have to claim mm-hmm. your power. So yeah. probably give it a different slant to say, you know, you need to take responsibility for your own power. I don't think yeah. it is given to you, but I think if you are confident and you can claim your power within that, um, you know, I, I don't think you have to go out there and take it in that same way. Yeah, I completely agree. As a feminist, I believe that every woman and every man has a power that's inherently within them. Absolutely. And, you know, it's about acknowledging that that exists and nurturing it um, and, you know, and connecting with other people that can help you to allow that power to shine but also use it responsibly and you know use it in a way that promotes equality with others so yeah I, that I find that quote you know, it, it's a little un, it sits uneasily with me but I find it really interesting it certainly pushes my buttons yes It's an interesting quote, isn't it? Because by saying taking power, you're assuming that you're taking it away from someone else, um, which is not what feminism is about, really. It's about, you know, giving power to everyone and empowering people. Because it's like if you take power, then there's a power vacuum. You know, if you're taking power from someone else. Well, it creates that imbalance, right? The whole point is that we want it. We want the gender equality in, you know, yeah. in every kind of area so that we don't have that power imbalance. So we're not having the power struggles so that we don't end up with these kind of issues. Yeah. Yeah. So I think lastly, just to finish up, you've mentioned your, your shine program is coming up on International Women's Day. Can you just remind us? What is the date of that? And also, where can our listeners find out more information about you and your foundation and follow you and find you on social media and other platforms? Well, thanks, Sarah. My um, my social media volunteer will be very happy that you asked that question. Um, <laughs> so we don't have a date set for Shine yet. We're just in the process of finalising that, but it will be around International Women's okay. Day and all the information will be on our website, which is www.lakahi.org.au. Um, and we are on Facebook and Instagram. I think it's at Lakahi Foundation for the Instagram. So please go and follow us on Insta and Facebook and all of the information will be on there. Plus you get to see all the other awesome things we're doing and the events that we'll be running at the end of the year. Wonderful. We, I will certainly be following you, Rachel, and I encourage everyone else to do so. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. It's been wonderful.